worship team today. It's as if we went back 10, 15, 20, let's face it, in Lawrence's case, 30 years uh, and replaced our musicians with our senior high worship team. And we were uh, very excited to have them with us on this Sunday morning. They're a great uh, example of kids who use their talents and gifts that God's given them to glorify God. And we are very blessed to have them not only in our youth department, but come here on uh, a Sunday that our worship team's gone and to lead worship for us. I got to tell you, I've seen them play over the course of many years, um, and they have been getting better and better. Uh, would you let them know that you appreciate them? It's, uh, it's always encouraging to see kids who are um, following God and sharing their gifts with others so that they may know God as well. Uh, there's a lot of things that our kids do today um, in this world. It's good to see them being a part of something worthwhile. So we are in Matthew chapter 16. And uh, we just left off with the, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees demanding a sign from Jesus. That he give them a sign to show them who they truly are. Uh, They're done, so I'm going to move the microphone for us out of the way. And and the significant part of that, one of the significant parts about that was the Sadducees and the Pharisees were not people that got along. They were two opposing groups of Jews. Uh, They both believed in God. They both believed in their pursuit of God. But they were diametrically opposed in how they went about it. The Pharisees were a group of people that uh, believed uh, very meticulously in the written law, the oral tradition, the tradition of, uh, of the Jewish church. They were very strict letter of the law believers. They, uh, they made sure every I was dotted correctly, every T was crossed as it should be. It was very important that everything was done by the book. The Sadducees. Uh, not so much. They, uh, they did not believe in the tradition or the oral law. They believed in only the written word of God. Uh, they were not looking for the coming of the Messiah uh, because they had things pretty good the way it was, and they didn't want to see it shaken. They were a political uh, aristocracy that had a lot of money and that came to power and, uh, and liked the way things were going with the Romans, so they didn't want to rock the boat. The Romans let them be who they were, and they were cool with that. So they kind of politically maneuvered so that they would always have what they had. So you have one side of the coin that uh, fought uh, against the Romans and wanted the Romans to be destroyed and was very meticulous letter of the law people. The other side that was, hey, man, as long as we got what we got, let's continue on this way in a pursuit of materialistic political power. These two different groups of Jews... Jewish leaders who came together to try and trap Jesus. And they asked him for a sign. Hey, man, if you really are who you say you are, prove it. And what does Jesus say? (laughs) No. Yeah, I don't don't play those games. There is one sign, the sign of Jonah. I am the sign. The fact that I am is the only sign you will get. And so Jesus moves on, but this conversation, this encounter is fresh in the minds of the disciples and Jesus as they leave. Verse 5, chapter 16, 
Later, after they crossed to the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered they had forgotten to bring any food. Watch out, Jesus warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They decided he was saying this because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he said, You have so little faith. Why are you worried about having no food? Won't you ever understand? Don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with five loaves and, and the baskets of food that were left over? Don't you remember the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves and the baskets of food that was left over? How could you even think I was talking about food? So again, I say, be aware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then at last they understood that he wasn't speaking about yeast or bread, but about the false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, this particular passage of scripture is, is, is interesting Um, because if you don't know a lot about Jewish tradition, you can read it surface level and get something from it. But if you know a little bit more, you get more. Actually, that's all of the text. If you know more about who he was writing to, Matthew, about who uh, the original texts were written to and for, you know a whole lot more about what God says through the Bible than if you just read it surface-wise. But here, we're talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and yeast. Now, yeast in the Jewish world um, was evil. It was seen as evil. Uh, yeast, as we all know, leaven is an agent that you put into dough to make it rise. Chemical reactions happen. All this bubble stuff comes out from the inside out, and then it becomes this beautiful loaf of bread. So it's a change agent. Now, when Israel was held captive in Egypt, when they, were, when they gained their freedom, they had to leave quickly. They left leaven behind. And so in their exodus, they are traveling without this yeast, without this leaven, and they eat unleavened bread. So from that point forward, as they celebrate their exodus through the celebration of Passover, all leaven is to be removed from the home to celebrate this time, God saving us from the hands of Pharaoh. So we remove this time, this, this, this leaven, this yeast, this evil, this putrefaction agent. And we eat things that are more pure. This is what our ancestors did. This is what we will do. So it began as a celebration of something that is more pure. But what happened was this, the way they looked at yeast and leaven is it became more and more as a representation of evil. Something that could change, and it was an evil thing. And they used it on a daily basis, except through the uh, celebration of Passover. But it was seen as evil. So when Jesus says, hey, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they immediately would have gone to an evil connotation. They immediately would have begun to think, begun to think that evil was somehow playing in here. Now, the other thing is this, as they're traveling across the sea, they, they had forgotten to bring any food with them. And they're like, oh, man, we didn't bring any bread. How are we going to eat? And just hear Jesus going, really? I just fed 9,000 people with 11 loaves of bread. 9,000 people with 11 loaves of bread, and you're worried about what you're going to eat? Come on. Do you not get it? But if you know from reading the other gospel accounts of what's happening right here, you know that where, where they're going, 
there would have been a lot of Gentiles. So they would have, have had to have been very careful about where they got their bread from. Because they could not have eaten bread that was prepared by Gentile hands. As a good Jew, you would never touch anything that a Gentile had touched. So they're falling into this pharisaical mindset. Where are we going to eat? We're going to have to search to find bread that's really good and pure, made by Jewish hands so that we won't be unclean. They're going back and forth between this trap of pharisaical thinking and thinking as a Sadducee would. This legalistic, we have to do it this way, and this pursuit of something. I mean, it was a pursuit of bread, something that would sustain you. But at the same time, Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, those worries are gone. If you believe in me, you're just putting something in between me and you. Whatever it is. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? I mean, think about it. The disciples had seen so much. They had experienced so much with the Messiah to this point. They're about to have their minds blown in a little bit. But right now, they had seen him raise someone from the dead. Made blind people see. People who couldn't walk, could walk. He fed thousands of people with a mere amount of food. All of these things, the new message that he was bringing, the way that he was shaping the traditions and the teachings that they had grown up with was groundbreaking. They were in. They were following him. They had given up their livelihoods to follow this man. And yet, as they're crossing from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other, they begin to have these questions. They put something in the way of their faith. This, to me, comes back to an issue of faith. What is it that you put between you and God? What is the yeast in your life? This leaven, this thing, this putrefaction agent that from the inside out changes you into something that God does not desire. Something that we allow into our lives as we set across the sea and start thinking these questions and having these worries and these wonders. And we begin to say, oh my gosh, what's going to happen when we reach the other side? If you're all in, you just go. But we're human. And we begin to let the yeast bubble. And the leaven rise. And we begin to think about what could go wrong or what if. We begin to let those things that are inside of us sometimes that are not God's will or desire to shape who we are on the outside instead of allowing Him to shape us. For me, my yeast, laziness, and fear, those are mine. It's laziness and fear. It's those times, those moments when I feel like God has given me a direction that one of those two things are, 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 will be the ones that prevent me from going on the path that he's laid before me. Laziness or fear. About three, four years ago, I started writing a book. And it's a book on Grace, my daughter. And I felt like God gave me just this amazing vision for something he wanted to teach through her. 
And it came out in about four or five sermons about three or four years ago. And I began to write a book about it. And I did some research and I compiled all this stuff and I sat down and I wrote the first chapter. And I outlined the rest of them. And then I stopped. And I stopped for two reasons. Laziness and fear. I stopped because I allowed those things inside of me that are putrefaction agents to change me into something that I'm not instead of allowing God to change me into who he wants me to be. Let's face it. If you've known me for any length of time, you know that I have a mild case of what some may call ADD. That my mind wanders quite amazingly quickly. That even as I preach, I'm thinking about a whole lot of other things. I can see people in the audience and I think about my relationship to them as I'm talking about my sermon. And my mind goes off on this little rabbit trail. And sometimes I'm like, where was I? Oh, yeah. And I come back. As I sit down and I'm trying to study, you should have seen me through seminary. It was comical. I just, I mean, I can be sitting and studying and I hear a noise outside. Gone. I am outside with that noise, trying to figure out what that noise is. What's happening outside? What's going on? Gone. It's easier for me sometimes to be enveloped in my ADD-ness to embrace it than to buckle down and fight through it. It's easier for me to go along the path that I've already trod than to strike out in a new direction that God has asked me to go. It's easier for me to go through my daily routine that I have done for years, to go through the same motions day after day than it is to say, you know what, I'm going to try something a little differently today because God has called me to something a little more. For me, writing is hard. It's hard. I could talk all day long. You can give me a subject and I will talk about it for a while. Whether or not I know anything about it, I will make you believe I do. It's a gift. It's the Irish side of my family, I guess. But writing is a different instrument for me. So for me, my laziness takes over. This is too hard. Don't do that. And then fear creeps in to tell my laziness that I'm right. Besides, you're not the person people want to hear from anyway. David Manitsky is the guy who should be writing books. He has a doctorate. Daryl, when he's finished, he should write a book. He'll be Dr. Daryl. <laughs> Deep thoughts with Dr. Daryl. That's great. <laughs> not you. It's this fear of failure of idea. Fear of failure. Did you really hear God or are you just going, you know what? I'm pretty funny and I could write a book. Because I imagine all books to be funny. Good ones anyway. It's this resistance that appears in our lives when God has put us on a path, a direction, a decision that we know we want to make for him. And it may be writing or it may be a change in career. It may be a change in family status. Maybe you're about to ask somebody to marry you and... You just can't get over the hump. You know nothing about that down the front row, do you? 
what is it? Sometimes we have this resistance that comes up. I'm, I'm reading this book right now called The War of Art, not to be confused with The Art of War. Um, the War of Art is a, a book that, um, that talks about this resistance that comes in our lives as we set out to do something magnificent for God, whatever it is. Something magnificent for God could be doing your job to the best of your ability so that he can get the glory. Uh, something for the glory of God, magnificent for God, could be planting a garden and teaching somebody how to do it alongside of you. It doesn't matter. The scope is huge and magnificent of where God moves. But sometimes when God calls us into something, actually every time he does, there is resistance that appears. And resistance comes in the form of, for me, laziness, fear. For you, it may be pride. For you, it may be some other form of, uh, of procrastination, stubbornness, fear of criticism from your friends, your family, the general public, fear of inability to continue on, fear of uh, what will people think, fear whatever. This resistance comes up to deprive us. And the moment that we get to see God's face, through what he does and the gifts and talents he's given us. I I was at this last week, the general conference or the annual conference for United Methodist Church. And for those of you that don't know what this is, um, it is where 900 people, Methodists from around our conference, San Angelo down to the valley, gather together in Corpus. Every pastor and lay delegates from um, each church in the conference. We gather together every year in Corpus during the summertime and we celebrate the mediocrity of the church. I mean, really, that's what we do. We come together and we try to tell each other how great things are. When all the while we go back to our own churches and we go to our own tables and we're like, man, we're sinking. This is not working. This year, finally, from the Episcopal office, we got the reassurance that we are indeed in trouble. Bishop Dorf got up to uh, give his um, Episcopal address, and he uh, relayed a message from the Council of Bishops that finally they understand the Methodist Church to be dying. Those of us in the audience were like, duh, (laughs) we've been seeing it for years. Where have y'all been? The church is dying. What was is not working anymore. What will be, we don't know what that is yet. And so his message was, the time is now. The time is now. He was going, win one for the Gipper type message. He was trying to fire up all the pastors and lay delegates and go, all right, go back to your little burg, wherever you're from, and win the world for Jesus. The time is now. I don't know how you're going to do that, but the time is now. Don't get me wrong. I I love our bishop. He's a great, funny, caring man. Um, But it's kind of like, we know We know this. We know that we have crossed the sea and we're in the middle of the sea and all of a sudden somebody turns to somebody else and goes, we forgot bread. What are we going to do when we get to the other side? But but, no, we had some back there and we remember the bread that we had over there and we like the bread. Can we go back? We all got in a boat. And we started across the sea. The thing is, we don't know what's going to happen on the other side. We don't know what we are going to find. I don't know what the church is going to look like in five years. 
I don't know what the church is going to look like next year. Except that we'll have another building right out there. Well, two years maybe. I don't know. What I do know is that we have started a journey. Started a journey in which God has asked us to do something magnificent in the kingdom. Okay, I've put you here in this community. I've put you here to do something glorious for me. To reach out to people who are hurting and to bring my love and comfort. To reach out to married couples who no one else in the community knows are suffering and crying out for help. You're there to be my help. I put you there for the guy who just lost his job and doesn't know what he's going to do. They're about to get evicted from their home. They don't know where their food is going to come from. You are there in this community to feed them, to clothe them. I put you there for that kid who's lost in school and doesn't know which pack to run with. And so he's turning to other things than me to drugs, and to alcohol. You're there to bring him back. Here we are in this community. And the only bread we have is the bread of life. It's the only bread we need. We don't know what's going to happen when we get to the other side. But I'm not going to let the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees pull me back to what was. I'm not going to let the resistance of laziness and fear enter my life to prevent me from experiencing God's glory. Because I have a stronger faith than that. I sometimes get knocked off, though. I sometimes get knocked off the path that he's laid before me and I, and I fall and I hurt and I cry out and I ask why and I get angry. But see, the thing about a community, the thing about disciples and believers who stand together is that there are people who reach out to me and hug me and listen to me and kick me in the tail and encourage me and feed me and clothe me and move me on so that I can do what God desires me to do. That's why we're here. To bring the kingdom now. To bring the glory of God to people who desperately need it. It's not going to be from me or from Dr. Darrell. It's from all of us in this community, reaching out to one another, surrounding one another in the love of Christ, believing in something bigger than ourselves. And when resistance comes, when leaven enters into our lives and tries to present us, prevent us from moving forward in the kingdom, we are there standing together to say, no, Jesus doesn't play that. And to move forward across the Sea of Galilee into the glory God. We are the body of Christ. We are the church in the world. We are the family of God. We welcomed little Bobby 
as one of us today. If we truly get that and believe that, then most of you in here don't even know Eric and Tori, but you will honestly do what you can to support them as they raise Bobby. If Bobby's gone off the deep end in high school and starts getting a little crazy and Eric's looking somewhere else, guess what? If Derek doesn't jump on something, I'm going to jump on Bobby. Go, hey, listen. And if Corbin goes, let's face it, when Corbin goes, (laughs) I hope that one of you comes and shakes me by the shoulders and say, I love you, Michael, but you got to get a control of your son. Let's do it together. Let's love him together. Let's support him together because we are a family. We are a body. We are the church. Let us pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you have brought us all together, each in our own unique way, to give you glory. God, I pray as we go forth from this room, as we cross the Sea of Galilee, and we don't know where we're going exactly or what it's going to look like when we get to the other side, I pray that you would give us strength, that you would give us courage, that you would... Bind us together in your love that we may be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. God, help us to see those moments when the leaven rises inside of us and tries to prevent us from going on the path you desire for us. Help us to see those moments. And to cling to you. And to allow the Holy Spirit that dwells inside all of us to be the agent of change. That we may be the men and women you desire us to be. God, we thank you and praise you for that gift and for this gift of life. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Prayer team will be on either side of the stage after the service. I'll be up front. We will see you next week. What?